is Sit Rep on BFBS. Why does Putin take no notice of NATO's threats and exercises? We put the Secretary-General on the spot. At last, the Chilcot report on why we went to war in Iraq. Why do British young men and women join IS? And Battlefield Medicine, the commando doctor who's making it work in peacetime. Plus, MI5 tells us why our emails must be bugged. Welcome along to SITREP. I'm Paula Middlehurst. Well, first today then, NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg has been talking to us about the way the alliance has tried to handle Russia since he took office 12 months ago. BFBS reporter James Hurst put it to him that the president of Russia simply takes no notice of anything he and NATO says or does. Russia has annexed Crimea. It has continued to support separatist rebels in Ukraine. It continues to frequently violate NATO airspace. And there is no talking going on. Our main responsibility is to uh, be able to defend and protect all allies against any possible threat uh, today and in the future. And uh, NATO is the most successful military alliance in history, and we are the strongest military, military alliance in the world today. And uh, we will continue to be so. Uh, and uh, the adaptation of NATO uh, and also the increased readiness and preparedness of our forces, uh, which is also expressed through the Trident Juncture exercise, is, uh, is the way we are doing that. But to some, it seems NATO's influence, you say, it's the world's strongest military alliance. It, its influence has <coughs> disappeared. Russia, again has paid no heed to your words on Syria. It has gone in, it's taken the military initiative, and NATO looks like it's all bark and no bite. But again, our main responsibility is to protect all NATO allies. Uh, and uh, Turkey is a NATO ally, bordering Syria, uh, bordering Iraq. And Turkey is, uh, has a strong uh, army themselves. Uh, but in addition, Turkey knows that uh, NATO stands in solidarity with Turkey, uh, ready to uh, defend, uh, to protect Turkey uh, if uh, that is needed. Uh, so I think we have to understand very uh, clearly that our main responsibility is not to be some kind of world police, but it is to protect, defend all allies, and that's exactly what the NATO is doing. We'll come back to Turkey and Syria in a moment, but I just want to, to understand why is it, do you think, that Russia is paying no heed to your words on Eastern Europe, on Syria? When it comes to Eastern Europe, I think uh, what we have seen during the last uh, uh, weeks or months is actually some positive developments. We have seen that the ceasefire uh, has been respected for the first time for a very long, long time. Uh, we have seen the withdrawal of uh, uh, heavy weapons, which is also uh, very important. And we have seen, uh, seen renewed efforts to find a really lasting political uh, solution. So we have a long way to go. Uh, we, we, we must be prepared for new setbacks and disappointments, but at least we have seen uh, some positive signs, some developments in uh, the right direction, and I welcome that. That's also to some extent the case in Syria, uh, because in the long run there is no military solution to the conflict in uh, Syria. Uh, in modern, in, in Hazi, uh, today, wars uh, don't end uh, on the battlefield. They end uh, on the 
negotiating table. But there, there is an actual battle going on on NATO's doorstep, and it, it, it looks odd that NATO is not directly militarily involved. Why is NATO not getting militarily involved when there is a, a war on its doorstep? Because NATO's main responsibility is to protect all uh, allies, and we are doing exactly that. We don't see any immediate threat against any NATO ally. Not Does IS not pose a threat? Not, not, not least because we are strong, we are uh, present, we are uh, any potential adversary know that an attack on one ally will be an attack on all NATO uh, allies. And that's one of the reasons, that's the main reason why we can say that there is no immediate threat against any NATO ally. Then we provide uh, support for Ukraine. Ukraine is not a NATO member, but Ukraine is a NATO partner. We provide them with strong political support. We support the political uh, efforts to find a political solution, and there, are, there, have been, there has been some progress. But in addition, we provide Ukraine with a lot of practical support. We help them with command, logistics, uh, training, uh, uh, different kinds of capabilities, modernizing their armed forces, so they uh, increase their ability to defend themselves. In addition to that, many NATO allies, for instance, the UK, provides a lot of uh, bilateral support, train, uh, uh, training, uh, and so on, and this is so important for Ukraine. See, you say IS doesn't present any immediate threat, but IS has uh, killed British citizens on a beach in Tunisia. It has killed Turkish citizens at a rally in Turkey. Surely that is a, a far more present and immediate threat than Russia. Uh, absolutely, but I think we have to distinguish between any uh, immediate threat um, against any NATO country uh, and the uh, threat of terrorist uh, acts uh, both uh, outside and inside uh, NATO countries. That is something which we have seen. Also in, in Tunisia, we have seen it in Paris, we have seen it in, in many other uh, places, both outside and inside uh, the NATO alliance. And that's the reason also why NATO and NATO allies are fighting terrorism in many different ways. You have to remember that the main reason why we have conducted our biggest military operation ever in Afghanistan is to fight terrorism. It was a direct response to the terrorist attack back in 2001. And the main reason why we have been in Afghanistan for such a long time is to prevent that Afghanistan once again, once again become a safe haven for international terrorists. So we will continue to fight terrorism and all NATO allies participate in the coalition fighting ISIL in Iraq and, uh, and uh, Syria. That was a NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg talking there to BFBS reporter James Hurst. Well, I'm joined today on SITREP by Russia analyst Martin McCauley as well as our own defence analyst Christopher Lee. Both been listening to that with us. Uh, Martin McCauley, you first. Why has NATO, in your view, failed to stand up to Putin? Uh, because it doesn't see Putin as a military threat. If you look at what uh, Putin is doing, it's ve he's very careful to stay within what was previously the Soviet uh, Union. Only in uh, Crimea, eastern Ukraine, possibly Moldova uh, and things like that. And he hasn't ventured outside that. Uh, he's talked, he's, he's uh, made threats against Latvia. There's an act act actually an economic war going on between Lithuania and, and Russia at present. But he hasn't ventured into, say, Latvia, Lithuania or Estonia. Uh, and therefore, he knows that if he stays within what was previously the Soviet Union, uh, then NATO will not come looking for him uh, because they will not perceive that as a threat to their members. Now, Poland, for one, is very concerned because they're all, uh, always very hawkish. Um, but the new prime minister, now on the right wing, 
um, Kaczynski, he may in fact up the ante and so on and be more anti-Russian, but NATO will say, no, we mustn't provoke uh, Putin because what he's done is abandon eastern Ukraine, he's given up uh, on eastern Ukraine, and he's transferred to Syria because Syria is a much bigger geopolitical area for Russia. Uh, and Russia is in there for the long term. If you look at the build-up of the Russian Navy uh, in eastern Mediterranean, uh, the bringing ships from the Baltic fleet, from the northern fleet, from uh, the Black Sea and so on, and, and there's also a Chinese air, uh, ship there as well. Uh, so therefore Russia is playing for the long term, and they regard, Putin regards, Syria as much more important. Now, that's outside the native area. Uh, now, if uh, uh, IS or Russia uh, got involved in a conflict with Turkey, that would involve NATO. But but uh, Putin would be very careful not to uh, interfere with uh, Turkey or to uh, cause a, uh, a causes belly with with uh, Turkey. So therefore, from NATO's point of view, you can sit on the sidelines and say, okay, uh, let let it continue. Uh, Russia be drawn into the Middle East, drawn into Syria. Uh, uh, allied to Iran and Hezbollah, and they're there for the long term. Uh, uh, and it's very important for Putin uh, to negotiate a better deal for him, for Russia, in the Middle East. So therefore, fortunately, for NATO in Europe, Eastern Europe, that's secondary. That's been put on the shelf. He's not going to cause any trouble there. He'll make lots of accusations, words and so on, as all Russian leaders do, but one shouldn't take them seriously. And let's not forget, of course, Syria leasing them that uh, warm water port, which is so important to the Russians down there. Well, Tartus, they've been there for a long time, and they're building up, uh, they're expanding Tartus. Uh, the airfield at Lakatia, they're expanding that. And what the Russians have done, the Americans have one huge base, and they put everything in. The Russians don't do that. They have one base, and then they have another one beside it, and another one, and that's what they're doing uh, in Syria. Uh, and uh, all the appearances, and of course, it's 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 the centre of the Alawite, uh, uh, if you like, clan or people in Syria. So it's going to be protected for that reason. And Assad was in um, Moscow recently, presumably uh, to uh, tell Putin that uh, situation is very difficult, and he wants more help. And that uh, the military in in Syria, the Syrian army, has really been directed now by the Iranians. One report says that eight Iranian, the Al Qud special troops, eight Iranian generals have gone, been killed, and so on. So it's it's a real war going on, and Russia's involved there and will stay there. And geopolitically, uh, looking <coughs> at this, there's been a lot of talk, hasn't there, about these two separate agendas, Come one coming from Russia, one coming from the West. Uh, as you say, Russia's in there for the long haul for its own reasons. Russia's got a completely different agenda. But there is this common enemy, isn't, enemy, isn't there, IS. Uh, do you think there could be a clash in terms of those agendas in, in seeking out that common enemy? Well, sooner or later, there's a problem for Russia because there are 20 million Muslims in Russia and 95% are Sunni. And Putin, in fact, is killing Sunnis in Syria and is siding with Shiites. Now, sooner or later, uh, tension will rise because there have been mutterings in Moscow and so on uh, among Muslims saying, and also in, in Tatarstan, places like that, which are Sunni, uh, what is Russia doing there? Uh, and that will, that will come to the surface. Uh, and if, in fact, the Syrian army is stopped, uh, or the Iranian Iranian troops as well, if they don't succeed, uh, the big thing is Aleppo at present, if they don't succeed there, then there'll have to be a rethink. 
and Russia will have to then go to perhaps NATO to the Americans and say we need help because we're not winning this war because they, uh, from Russia's point of view they think they can win the war by uh, air power with the Iranians and the Hezbollah and the Syrians providing the uh, foot soldiers uh, if that doesn't work uh, then there'll have to be a rethink uh, and some people think, some Moscow military analysts think that Russia is heading for a very, very difficult military situation in Syria. Leaving aside Putin's military chess game, Christopher Lee, for the moment, if you like, after a year in office, so what do you make of Jens Stoltenberg's performance? I always think that Jens Stoltenberg sounds like a, a publicity officer of Jens Stoltenberg. Um, the Secretary-General very rarely has anything sensational to, uh, to say because after all he's a secretary general a secretary of 28 nations the real power and the person I would have liked to have heard talking about this is the deputy secretary general um, uh, Sandy Vashbo who an American so that makes it difficult but he was ambassador in, 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 in Moscow he speaks Russian he understands Putin very well some of the papers I've read from him are really hot mustard stuff uh, he was also uh, he was also the person that would uh, advise the president on what Putin is doing. And so some ways, uh, if you're going to Stoltenberg, you're really going to get the mouthpiece and you're not going to get the brains. Christopher Lee for the moment. Thank you. Still to come, how anti-extremists at the Quilliam Foundation are hoping to stop radicalisation through the arts and the commando doctor spreading the word about battlefield medicine. Now, after two years in the planning, the NATO exercise Trident Juncture is well underway. We can take you to that exercise right now. Captain Steve Morehouse is the commander of the helicopter carrier, assault ship and, of course, Royal Navy flagship HMS Ocean. Uh, thanks for talking to us, Captain Morehouse. Where exactly are you at the moment? Good afternoon, Paula. We're, we're in the Mediterranean, uh, just between uh, Africa and Spain at the moment. Some 30 nations then involved in all this, 36,000 personnel, 60 aircraft stretch from Portugal through Spain to Italy. The numbers are, are mind-boggling. How do you pull it all together? Uh, as you said in your int uh, introduction, it's taken two years in the planning, um, but, but NATO, uh, certainly in a maritime perspective, is, is well-versed in, in this sort of exercise. Uh, and we, we pull together a whole range of nations and capabilities, uh, and, and we come together pretty seamlessly, actually, and the, the last two weeks has been fantastic uh, professional satisfaction as well as uh, 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 personal enjoyment. That sounds great, but, I mean, I can imagine just even the language difficulties. Have you got sort of hordes of interpreters, uh, you know, easing the difficulties between the Portuguese and the Spanish and the Italians, for example? How does that all gel together? We're very fortunate that uh, most of the staff officers speak very, very good English and, and, and puts most of us to shame. Um, the Admiral staff on board Ocean uh, have a number of liaison officers uh, from across the NATO nation, so most countries are represented. And again, that just helps to smooth out any of the issues that, that may arise. But does all the kit gel together? Very much so, very much so. Uh, and, and NATO maritime nations train together regularly in all sorts of different areas around uh, uh, Europe. And so when we come together for this, our operating procedures are very similar, uh, the radio procedures, and very most of the kit uh, is interoperable. So again, it, it's, it's a reassuring uh, when we bring it together on this scale. 
uh, how smooth it actually is. It all sounds incredibly smooth. There must be some challenges. What, what, what for you are the things that really uh, make people, uh, you know, step up to the plate and, and act professionally and, and, you know, do the thing that they're employed to do well? Well, it's that it's communication is critical, and Ocean's a perfect example. Not only do we have uh, 20 nations represented on board the ship, um, as a UK, I've also got uh, members of the Royal Air Force, the Army Air Corps, the Royal Marines. So uh, it, making all of those disparate elements come together for a common purpose is, is our challenge. Uh, and actually, military professionals rise to that. Uh, they see that common purpose, and, uh, and their professionalism shines through. Uh, and and it's, it's been fantastically rewarding uh, and seeing nations and different ships uh, interact uh, in high tempo exercise is really rewarding. Captain Morehouse, you said you were in the Mediterranean. Our listeners know exactly what's happening down in those waters. We've, we've seen the pictures on TV. We've heard the reports on radio. We know about these boats of refugees. What happens if you spot something in the water? What happens if you, if you see bodies? What happens if you see boats that are sinking? What do you do? Well, our reactions to incidents like that are the same as they would be anywhere in the world. We, first and foremost, we have a responsibility as a mariner on the seas. Um, the safety of life is first and foremost, and I say that would happen regardless of where we are. Clearly, we're conscious of it in the Mediterranean. Uh, there are other assets from NATO and, and the European Union that are out uh, in the area specifically tasked with that, uh, and that does allow us at the moment to concentrate on this exercise. But as I say, first and foremost, safety of life at sea is, is, a, is a mariner's almost number one commandment, so uh, we'd be standing by to respond should we be uh, called upon. And just lastly, I know you're very busy, but uh, what do you think is going to be the highlight for you when you look back on this exercise? I, I think just the, the complexity of it and the, the numbers that you stated, it's the largest exercise for 20 years, and to have hosted... Uh, uh, commander of the UK Maritime Forces on board Ocean, who's in charge overall of that maritime element, has been hugely rewarding. And just seeing my team grow over the three weeks uh, and, and the, the, the sort of low-level training that we do day in, day out, and the, actually now seeing it come to fruition is a fantastic. And, and the individuals themselves are having, a, having a, a great time. It sounds incredibly impressive. We really appreciate you taking time to talk to us. Captain Steve Morehouse from HMS Ocean, thank you for joining us. Well, let's talk briefly now about some other stories making the news today. Christopher, what do you make of that Chilcot inquiry announcement about it being published next summer? Chilcot inquiry is the inquiry into the circumstances that started the British involvement in the war in Iraq in 2003. The inquiry, which has been going on since 2009, at last is supposed to be published. It'll go to April, uh, and then when, when the two million words are finished, it'll then go to the security services and probably be published in the summer. The feeling is they could slip because what will happen is the Parliament will get up for its holidays and it'll disappear. Tony Blair's already said today that he's looking forward to analysing that and giving his comments on the inquiry. He has done so. He's given his comments, I and mean, he gave it in a CNN uh, interview, but he's also given it to the inquiry themselves, and so they've got his response within that inquiry. So let's talk also then about the head of MI5 giving a speech. Andrew Parker's been talking once again. Andrew Parker, uh, Director General, MI5, says in 32 years uh, of service with, with, with the department, he has never seen a terrorist threat like this. And therefore, next week, it's important for everybody to understand when the government presents its, its uh, data protection bill that people have to understand 
the, the intelligence services need a certain amount of leeway to get into our emails. Christopher Lee for the moment, thank you. Let's tell you now then about the Quilliam Foundation. It's a non-governmental organisation devoted to the study of what exactly it is that radicalises young people enough, for example, to join IS. It's a hard road and Quilliam has launched a new campaign called Hashtag Reject ISIS. The purpose is in the title, they say, Say No to Radicalisation. But there are very many different ways of doing that. And we'll talk now to Najish Khan, who's Quilliam's arts practitioner Researchers, uh, researcher rather, uh, she joins us now. Great to talk to you, Nazish. Why then do you think we're losing the fight against IS's slick propaganda machine? Great. Hello. Good afternoon, Paula. Well, first of all, there's no disputing the quality of the material that IS produce. I mean, we've all seen, you know, sort of the slick trailers. The second thing is the actual quantity of material that's coming out. So. In any given month, there's about 1,200 bits of propaganda. And that's a lot of material to try and disseminate, to take down. So it needs to be counted on all levels. And the other thing is that IS are very good at adapting their message according to their need at the time. So when they first started, there was an initial focus on brutality online, and you'd see quite a lot of those shocking images. Now you see there's been a move to state building and by that it's this idea of utopia, this whole sense of belonging. And now some of the videos that you're seeing coming out of IS are less disturbing and you see things, for example, a video on the health service which alarmingly looks like the NHS service here. You have the blue logo, the smiling doctors, the recovering patients. And there is this myth that it's just, you know, it's all brutal. So they've moved their argument and we just can't keep up. You know, we have to um, find different ways of engaging with young people to try and, you know, give them the message that this isn't the way forward. So is this, is this the, the, the sort of the thing then behind your new push to use culture and the arts to persuade young people otherwise, to, to sort of hook them on with arts? Well, the thing is, we do a lot of work in schools, so this actually came out of a lot of the workshops we've done speaking to young people. A lot of young people in prevent areas, and by prevent areas I mean those that have been flagged up by, um, you know, the government that are, where the children are potentially, um, you know, might be vulnerable to radicalisation. Those children, they don't want prevent officers to come in and talk to them. They but resent- do they want arts either? Right. I mean, what, what's, well, the, what's the difference? Well, the difference is because with the arts, there isn't, um, there's no judgement. You go in, you talk to them. You don't go in talking about ISIS and radicalisation. You go in with an agenda that they set. And if... The, the, the thing that we found is you can't look at radicalisation for young people on its own. You have to look at it through the lens of other issues they're going through. But how can the arts challenge a belief system? Because they get to express themselves. The, the belief system, certainly with ISIS, they hijack a lot of the vulnerabilities young people are going through. And if they have no other outlet, then there is that danger they will get push down with the arts we get them to express themselves this whole sort of idea that how isis operate it's this transmitter they use different mediums we use the same so um and we've had good results um the actual video negotiate that's behind the campaign is actually words 
by the students. They're not ones that adults have written. It's their form. And, you know, we've had some very insightful information back from them, including things like they understand why the girls went, the three girls from Bethnal Green went to ISIS. You would never get that sort of information or feedback from them talking to, you know, a prevent officer or a policeman or even, you know, a, a teacher for that, for that matter. So it's a way of firstly keeping them engaged so they don't become isolated. It's a way of them expressing themselves. You know, it's better they express themselves and are cross or angry or frustrated in that environment rather than being groomed or, you know, taken down another route. And also it's... Um, it builds bridges because in, in a lot of schools where there is a high Muslim population, there isn't much cohesion between the Muslims and the non-Muslim students. So this is a way of engaging with them all. And then it also offers, it makes counter-extremism mainstream. Nazia Khan, yes. we'll have to leave it there. Thank you. That's a fulsome explanation. Okay. Nazia Khan from the Quilliam Foundation, thank you for joining us and explaining that to us today. Now, medics who save lives in hostile environments have gathered in London for the World Extreme Medicine Conference. After more than 10 years of combat in Iraq and Afghanistan, it's really no surprise that British military medics are leading the field with their knowledge of dealing with battle wounds. Former Royal Marine Medic Surgeon Commander Dr Jamie Phillips has been sharing his insight at the conference and we're lucky enough uh, joins us now from Westminster as well. Jamie, welcome to the programme. Good afternoon, Paula. Fair to say those two wars have meant huge strides uh, and in terms of what uh, the, the ground that's been gained in treating battle injuries and dealing with trauma. What are the most important, significant developments that, uh, developments that there have been during that time? I mean, certainly from my, my experience in, in combats, there's five main rules that, that I've learned and that's what I've been talking about this week at the World Extreme Medicine Conference. Point one is that combat medicine is about trust. It's trust between doctor and patients, but it's also trust within the medical team, and it's trust within the command team, but also trust between the service men and women that if they are injured, both physically and psychologically, that their society, that the British community will look after them when they come home. I think the second thing is as well that simple things done well and done early, that it saves lives, and that's a message that's now translating to the National Health Service and saving lives on a daily basis. A great example is the introduction of the cat tourniquet into the NHS. That's now a very simple piece of equipment that is saving lives on British streets on a daily basis. I'd say probably the third thing for me is that good medical leadership brings control to commands, that actually by having an integrated and supported and trusted medical team embedded within the unit rather than surged into that unit, the command team can trust that team and allow them to manage the casualty and continue the battle. Uh, fourth, I would say, is casualties have a profound impact on everybody involved not just the service men and women who are injured or the people that treat them directly but their families the individuals listening in the ops room and the individuals who repatriate them back to the uk and then the final thing is it's really been a plea from the medical community that actually the expectation or the weight of expectation weighs very heavily on the shoulders of the medics the last decade of war has enabled us to get very good at saving people's lives and that's commendable However, as we transition out of Afghanistan and Iraq, there's still a residual level of expectation which we as medics, we put on ourselves, but also that society puts on us. Are you concerned that that, that, that wealth of knowledge, those specialist skills, could be lost if you don't transfer them through conferences just like this? 
Uh, definitely, and that's why, that's why I'm very passionate, and we've had the full support of, uh, of the Surgeon General's Department to pass these messages on. There's been a number of military speakers, doctors, medics, talking today and over the week trying to pass on these messages and ensure that they're not lost. So are people buying the idea? Where in the world could your skills be used next? I think medicine is is inextricably linked with combat, but also is is inextricably linked with operating in extreme environments. So certainly the lessons that we're pushing out are being taken up by not just other military organisations, but also the NHS and civilian extreme medicine companies. Um, I've had some fascinating discussions this week with colleagues from around the world about how we can share information and how we can share ideas using the hashtag FOAMED, which enables us to push out free open access medical education. Dr Jamie Phillips, thank you very much for joining us. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Well, what should we be watching out for over the next seven days, Christopher? Look out next week in Parliament, data information. The government's going to introduce uh, the idea of the intelligence services need more access, for example, telephones, emails, uh, social media, etc., all belong to us. It is, as Andrew Parker, head of MI5, said this morning, the worst time in 30 years for anti-terrorism operations, and they've got to have that. That's what they'll tell us anyway. Christopher Lee, thank you. Martin McCauley, thank you too. Don't forget that rugby match tonight, the British Army, the Republic of Fiji, coming face-to-face for the first time. The IDRC Forces World Cup match played at Twickenham Stoop tonight. That's home to the Harlequins. You can watch the game on Forces TV and keep up to date with reports on BFBS Radio. That's all we have time for for this week. Many thanks to our contributors. Do keep your comments comments rather coming in on Twitter. Join us next week. Thank you. Good night. Sports, sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio.